0: How will the coronavirus change the way we live, and therefore the business landscape? We find out next. Welcome to the second episode of Fundamentals an equity-focused series on our podcast channel, Amplified. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at the firm. In these unprecedented times, I'm coming to you from my home in Dublin, not our usual studio in London. So please bear with us if there are any sound quality issues. On our first episode of Fundamentals, I was joined by Jonathan Pines, a portfolio manager on our Asia Japan team, who discussed his contrarian investment style. Let's remind ourselves of what he had to say.
1: We would definitely say we are more contrarian than value. And let me explain the difference. So so value is buying cheap stocks. So so perhaps buying stocks on a cheap price book or PE or a high dividend yield or a, a low price to cash flow, whereas contrarian means buying unloved stocks. So, So an example of a contrarian stock that's not a value stock might be a growth stock that is out of favour. So it's still expensive but less expensive than it used to be. Now recently, of course, there's been a high correlation between being a a value manager and being a contrarian manager uh, because of course value stocks have been uh, terrible performers relative to growth for a long time. So if you're a contrarian manager, uh, you are naturally going to have more value stocks because that's where the bargains appear to have been
0: So, here we are on April 14th, 2020. What has happened since we recorded that episode of Fundamentals? Today, it seems, there is an element of hope coursing its way through equity markets. We have seen the very beginning of some reopening across some economies in Europe. It is, I would say, a very tentative reopening at this stage. There is also some early indicators that some of the data on the coronavirus and its spread are somewhat positive, There does seem to be a flattening of the numbers of cases, as well as a flattening of the number of deaths. Markets are certainly taking this as an indicator that now is the time to be somewhat more optimistic. Joining the conversation today is Kunjil Gala, Co-Portfolio Manager in our Global Emerging Markets team. Later on, we'll be joined by Steve Chevron from Federated Hermes Inc. as he provides his perspective from New York City. Welcome, Kunjil. Thank you for joining me here today. Hi, thank you very much for having me. That's great. Well, clearly, Kunjil, you are being engaged in emerging markets. You have probably seen the very earliest indicators of the effect of coronavirus, as it was, of course, in China where the virus first had its impact. Before we launch in, however, to the effect that you believe this will have long term on the region and on some of the sectors and some of their prospects, I'd love to get a little bit of detail about your personal journey into investing. Can you just talk us through how you ended up now Uh, as co-portfolio manager of a global emerging markets team?
2: Uh, Yes, sure. I'm happy to do that. Uh, So I joined back in 2012. So it's been almost eight years working with the Emerging Markets uh, Fund. Uh, Prior to that, I spent several years working with Her Majesty's Treasury here in the UK. And that was an interesting time. That was during 2008 uh, onwards. Uh, when the world was coming out of the uh, global financial crisis, and I worked with the Treasury's investments team, uh, focusing on a number of aspects to support the economy and also support uh, the austerity measures that were put in place later on. Uh, Prior to that, I spent several years working on the sell side, covering the global consumer sector, initially from Mumbai and then later on from London uh, and this was primarily from a corporate finance mergers and acquisitions perspective. And before that, I worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers in India, uh, where I was part of the uh, assurance and business advisory services team, mainly focusing on assurance and uh, audit practices of the firm. Uh, and before that, uh, while I was pursuing my graduate degree i interned at an equity research boutique equity research firm in india uh, which in the late 90s and that was my first ever experience of uh, looking at companies doing financial analysis looking at markets meeting companies etc and from there on my journey started first to understand how the world actually works how companies actually work how financial statements are engineered, how governments work, how strategies are being made. Then when I felt I was ready to take on uh, the the more direct approach to investing, I joined uh, Hermes in 2012. Initially I joined as an analyst focusing on Asia. uh, And then subsequently around four years ago became the co-portfolio manager on our uh, UCITS fund and then subsequently on the small mid-cap and also on a few of our segregated mandates. So that's that's my journey in the
0: nutshell. I think it's very interesting because clearly as we here sit here in the middle of this crisis, you've had many different hats and you sat maybe around the table in many different seats. And it certainly seems to me that as we tackle with this crisis and look at some of the potential fallout and the solutions to it, it will require a level of cooperation between many of these different seats. We're going to need corporate insiders. We're going to need uh, some government stakeholders as well as um, some big companies themselves um, working with politicians. So you certainly seem to have seen many different angles there. What perspective do you think that brings um, to this particular um, state that we're in right now, having seen how companies deal with crisis, as well as how perhaps the civil service will respond?
2: Yeah, no, it is interesting because all stakeholders will have a different way of looking at things and for us and it has implications for us as well as fund managers, portfolio managers and investment analysts uh, because whatever other people do, we are here to evaluate those decisions and ultimately make some forecasts as to where some of the countries and economies are going to go, how certain sectors are going to evolve and how certain companies are going to behave. Let me give you uh, some perspectives. During the global financial crisis, where I was working for Her Majesty's Treasury in their investments team, uh, that was, I would say at the time, the, the crisis was at its peak. A number of financial institutions and banks in the UK had to be bailed out. At the same time, private sector was also crying for help. They needed bailout themselves, airlines in particular, some automotive companies in particular needed uh, funding. Uh, At the same time, the focus of the government was not just saying, okay, let's relieve some of these uh, entities from stress, but how do we promote economic activity? How do we promote job creation? Where should we deploy capital so that skilled jobs are being created and then at some point the conversation shifted saying okay we've spent a lot of money now Uh, we now end up with a large deficit so how do we reduce the deficit and then the austerity starts so i've seen that journey and now here we are uh, with another crisis although it's quite different from the previous ones
0: and we certainly will later delve into some of the long-term changes that the coronavirus pandemic will create across industries as you see it But before that, I'd like to just drill down a little bit into um, EM versus DM or emerging markets versus developed markets. You mentioned the pace at which um, both the um, government sectors as well as companies respond to challenges. Can we talk about how emerging markets have responded to this challenge, um, the speed at which they've done so? Has it been uniform across emerging markets? We think always of Asia as really setting the standard for how the coronavirus reaction should have been, the speed and the universality of the response. And perhaps we could say in Asia they had a kind of a dry run with this with SARS in 2003 and that their society is already conditioned perhaps to social distancing and to behaving in this way. I think sometimes I I tend to forget anyway that your remit in emerging markets also includes all of Latin America as well as the Middle East. And have those countries Um, responded in a timely fashion, or are they behind the curve? Will they even, if they want to, be able to impose a kind of social distancing that has now become the norm in developed economies? And um, what are the unique challenges that they face across emerging markets? So I'm thinking of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, etc.
2: Yeah, no, that's a very interesting uh, question. Um, And it's not just the virus, but there are a lot of other aspects uh, in which emerging markets uh, differ, Uh, countries within emerging markets differ from each other, uh, be it reforms, be it the emerging middle class, consumption, investments in infrastructure, investments in digital. And we see a pattern, you know, those countries who are forward looking like China, like Taiwan, uh, to some extent, Korea, India, uh, those countries, you know, have been quite proactive in the virus situation as well, by ban by banning um, international travel, domestic travel, imposing severe lockdowns. Whereas economies on the other side of the world, uh, Latin America in particular, uh, were a bit complacent in the beginning, uh, and as a result, uh, you know. The, the markets have already reacted to some extent by penalizing them uh, because these economies are also vulnerable from the global slowdown. Some of the economies are vulnerable from uh, a flow perspective, some of them are vulnerable from external funding perspective. Uh, so unfortunately what has happened is the more vulnerable an economy from an economic perspective, uh, the the reaction or the uh, policy actions from the virus perspective has been limited you should have we need we need we need another way around saying if you are more vulnerable then your uh, action or policy action to mitigate the virus has to be even more stronger but unfortunately that has not been the case you know so far uh, whereas those economies who are stronger have a lot of resource Uh, can fight the current situation out, have been more proactive, you know, so, which is good, but we also wanted to see vulnerable economies uh, do the same, uh, and they haven't really, uh, you know, done that so far, and I hope that they uh, continue uh, to think positively about the situation and and try and, uh, you know, curtail the, the impact.
0: Can we talk then about flows into emerging markets? Because what has been notable to me has been that there has been a sort of a systematic lacklustre response, I believe, for the last number of years um, by investors towards emerging markets, whether that be debt or equities. And it does seem that in recent times, there has been a stark fall off in foreign flows into China equity, EM equity, excluding China, as well as emerging markets debt. And what do you think is the story behind these outflows?
2: Yeah, so let's just recap uh, what has happened year to date and the severity of of the outflows. According to the Institute of International Finance, the emerging markets have seen a record amount of outflows this year, totaling to almost close to a hundred billion, little less than hundred billion dollars. And a majority of the outflow has been on the equity side and some on the debt side as well. And the severity of this outflow is significantly more than what we saw in some of the previous uh, crises like the gfc or the taper tantrum during 2013 uh, for example during gfc the amount of outflow was approximately anywhere between 20 and 30 billion so we have seen a significant flow out of em in just a couple of months uh, this year because of the of the scare the virus scare Uh, And that has, uh, again, impacted countries um, differently. So if you think about China in particular, uh, it was only recently when China opened up its uh, capital markets to foreign investors, and you have a very strong dominant domestic institutions and retail investors in China, so China did not face the issue uh, so much as compared to say indonesia or india or other parts of uh, em or, or in on emea and latin american side where the dependency on portfolio flows is a lot higher uh, especially when it comes to funding the current account uh, deficit uh, so to that extent uh, yes the flows have been quite severe and it is understandable because uh, we are in particularly uncharted territory right now. It's the fear of the unknown. Nobody really knows how we get out of this situation or whether we can get out of this situation on a more sustainable basis or whether we'll have uh, these type of issues, pandemic related issues come in and go uh, every few months or every few years. So uh, nobody really has the type of expertise. Uh, no, investors are not medical professionals. Even medical professionals are struggling. So we we are in, in, in an unknown territory, and that's why the first thing people will do is to pull money out and then think about it later. And that is what has happened. But interestingly, what has happened is if you look at th- places like India, domestic investors have been a, a lot more sanguine about the Issue. I mean, they're also worried, they're also nervous, don't get me wrong, but uh, generally when foreign investors have been selling, domestics have been picking it up, uh, they are looking at the opportunity as uh, not so much as a threat, uh, but as a means to uh, accumulate good quality companies that are now suddenly a lot more cheaper. So one has to also balance things out uh, and think about it a little bit more realistic manner, a little bit more rational, whether the crisis is uh, temporary or permanent. And at some point the view should be that this is a temporary issue and the the science and the technology will take it over and uh, find a solution and we'll come out of it and we are already seeing some signs some european countries are now already talking about uh re- reducing the the lockdowns uh, getting back to work factories in china some some of them are now already working on double shifts Uh, In India, 50% of districts in India are not impacted by the virus. So the government is contemplating uh, opening those districts to business. Uh, So I think gradually we'll see the the impact of the lockdown start fading. Uh, Hopefully by then we see some sort of medical uh, intervention uh, breakthrough come through uh, in terms of either a vaccine or some treatment. maybe the weather can also uh, help in some way and uh, the portfolio flows should start reversing because if you think about it what has happened markets emerging markets are now trading very close to where they were during the global financial crisis in terms of their uh, price to book multiples Uh, within that value sectors have corrected significantly growth has corrected but not so significant as value but nevertheless growth has also corrected Valuations are no longer steep and as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of very good quality companies now suddenly available at uh, decent reasonably uh, lower multiples and uh, we believe that the longer term case for emerging markets still continue. Uh, yes, not all markets will have a similar type of trajectory uh, and that is why the role of active managers is, is quite important. Uh, so that, uh, you know, we can differentiate between less vulnerable and more vulnerable economies and companies who can benefit from whatever the environment uh, comes through uh, when we are through with the virus.
0: That's very interesting. And I think in terms of um, sentiment towards emerging markets, we really are dealing with quite a complex phenomenon, both, as I said, um, countries such as South Korea and Taiwan being held up as the real standard bearers in terms of how to, to cope with this crisis and we are really looking to them for guidance in terms of testing, volume and just the very careful contact tracing. And then on the other hand, there is of course this fear which is stoking some perhaps a, a, a fear of anything foreign, um, of anything unknown, of anything even more volatile than what we're experiencing here. And I expect that the um, it'll probably be a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the, the near-term implications for sentiment around emerging markets. But I'd like to take this um, chance to move into some of the sectors that you have focused on as four areas where there might be shifts and long-term shifts, some of which will be accelerated by this crisis. You've highlighted in a piece, healthcare, enterprises, households, and technology. And I'd like to really dive into some of those in more detail, in particular healthcare, Healthcare is the obvious area where we are seeing both massive pressures right now, as well as challenges. And I, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in emerging markets, healthcare has been a theme for some time, primarily because we did have an emerging middle class, perhaps better access to healthcare. We had seen investments in hospital chains across the region, and a general improvement of the level of healthcare, which in some reasons was, regions was probably starting from a fairly low base how do you see this crisis as having an impact on healthcare in the region on some of the providers and perhaps an accelerating some of the trends that were already in place so in terms
2: of healthcare uh, you know the way i look at it uh, right now is you know back in 2008 the the banks uh, received a a stressed uh, situation. They they underwent a stressful situation following the collapse of the mortgage market. Uh, And then we know what happened. Banks had to be bailed out and then regulations were changed to make banks stronger. And in fact, in many parts of the world, especially in U.S., banks are a lot stronger than what they were uh, back in 2008. And similar situation is happening now in uh, the healthcare space, uh, health uh, institutions, public health systems are undergoing a an automatic stress test situation. And once we come out of the virus, uh, governments uh, and officials will indeed have a look at their shortcomings, their gaps, and, and try to fill them. And in fact, uh, I just read over the weekend that the that officials in Shanghai have already put out a set of guidelines to improve the public health system and to make Shanghai as a safe city over the next five years from a public health perspective. And they are going to deploy a lot of technology based solutions to improve their preparedness for pandemics and just generally improve the quality of the health system. And once a major city like Shanghai decides to do that, I'm sure a number of cities in China will do that. Uh, And across the world, I think politicians will be compelled to make sure that their health systems and their social security systems both kind of work during the times of crisis. And I think that's a no-brainer. It's inevitable that we will see that. Private sector is also likely to look at this space uh, with much more interest um, because there will be a a, a decent amount of role for the private enterprises to play in ensuring uh, a country's uh, self-sufficiency or preparedness for uh, future uh, health scares. It could be for developing drugs, it could be for research, it could be for making medical devices running hospitals, uh, it could be any any things within healthcare, but I think private sector should also play uh, an important role uh, in delivering uh, world-class healthcare at affordable prices uh, for the citizens of any country. And that's been a theme that we've been uh, playing even before the virus.
0: Very interesting. And also then moving to enterprises, um, clearly emerging markets have been the beneficiaries of much of the outsourcing that has been going on from developed markets. That's even become quite a political theme um, in in the U.S. recently. Um, Now we're seeing some of these supply chains perhaps being put under pressure. Um, We are seeing also the um, business continuity plans being tested in some of these source entities. I'd hazard a guess to say that they're actually performing quite well under these BCP tests, but maybe you have different on the ground experience. But it does seem to me that many of these, say, call centers, for example, have actually transitioned quite smoothly to a work from home situation. Um, how do you think the long term implications on enterprises are going to, going to plan out here? Um, will we revert to having more locally sourced supply chains? Is that um, going to be a a long-term sort of secular change we see? And um, how do you think um, some of the emerging market companies you cover have dealt with the current challenges?
2: Yeah, so supply chain, uh, this topic has been in discussion for a while now. Uh, Even before the virus, we had a different issue that the world was uh, uh, facing, which was a US-China trade tensions. And because of those trade tensions and the risk of uh, tariffs, a number of companies operating in China were looking at relocating part of their manufacturing footprint to other countries that are who are more favorable to uh, the u s uh, administration and that move has already started. We've seen that firsthand in some of the companies in our portfolio who have uh relocated their um, uh supply chains uh, and part of the manufacturing to to vietnam to taiwan and also uh to to mexico and some of you when gone back to the us so so we've seen that already and i think with the virus uh the shift uh from a centralized sourcing model uh, will accelerate, and uh, maybe there will be smaller manufacturing hubs that uh, will get a boost. For example, Mexico, to some extent, India, uh, Eastern Europe, Mexico. I think those areas uh, will definitely uh, find some favor. Uh, again, provided the governments in those countries are proactive and they are able to attract uh, those, uh, you know, uh, those kind of investments and create. Uh, Uh, an environment in which uh, industries can flourish. And I think that is where the trick is because the reason why China is so successful uh, is because they have created a very strong ecosystem, favorable policies, uh, don't have really much of bureaucratic uh, issues when it comes to permits, uh, large workforce, uh, very good infrastructure, availability of water, power, etc. Uh, and it's not very easy not going to be very easy for other countries to replicate that level of uh, success that china has uh, demonstrated but nevertheless uh, this is going to be a long journey and uh, as they say rome was not built in a day similarly you know we'll see the development of the industrial uh, economies outside of china uh, over over a period of time Uh, We've already seen that recently with, uh, you know, one company in our portfolio uh, reacting to the virus and relocating one of their manufacturing facilities from Korea to uh, Vietnam. Uh, And I'm sure we'll hear more of such stories in the future. But again, uh, one has to be very careful. The movement is not going to be very smooth. It will have implications for companies' operations, their margins, because the new operation is unlikely to be uh, profitable from day one, it will have initial issues that they will have to resolve. Uh, The experience of working in China versus other parts of the world is quite different. Uh, And the most important thing is the ecosystem, right? Uh, It's not going to be easy to replicate the entire Chinese ecosystem uh in, in 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 a matter of few months or a few years it will take take a little bit longer but it, as i said it's going to be a journey and we feel that uh, getting closer to end markets uh, should definitely help if there are future disruptions uh, but at least companies will have to make a start and at least diversify away from china uh, let's say into uh, other parts of uh, of the of the world Uh, to at least uh, mitigate uh, some of the immediate risks, but I think longer term, uh, being closer to the end market uh, seems uh, more logical and rational, but provided uh, a similar type of infrastructure and similar type of uh, uh, facility is available uh, to replicate the the ecosystem. So yeah, it's going to be a long journey, but nevertheless, something that we, we are already working on.
0: And I think our our listeners can certainly look at some of our content on our website around some of the other areas you've highlighted as um, having a real uh, chance of um, notable shifts, and they would be households and technology. But I'd like to move now to um, a a section we have every month on fundamentals, which is um, we devote some time to talking about responsible asset management. And this is a segment called Responsibility Works. Now, I'd say it's fair to say that in emerging markets, um, there has not been necessarily an easy path to responsible investing. There perhaps hasn't been um, early adoption of some ESG criteria. But um, it seems also that the magnitude of this challenge has really meant that governments themselves simply don't have the resources to tackle all of the challenges, that there simply are not the resources on the ground, and that the private sector does need to step up um, as part of a commitment to society, perhaps to show its good corporate citizenship can you maybe talk about some evidence you've seen of um, companies stepping up with some broader sense of responsibility now to contributing something meaningful and genuine to the, um, the current struggle against coronavirus?
2: Yeah, so we are seeing that happening now. So initially when the virus broke out, uh, companies uh, had to obviously start uh, looking very hard at uh, their own liquidity and survival related issues making sure that they have enough funds to last maybe maybe longer than the lockdown will last just in case the lockdowns are extended uh, so i think companies probably have done that they have been drawing their uh, credit facilities uh, make sure they have enough liquid resources uh, they are also looking at rationalizing their cost base, especially the fixed cost base. Uh, some companies are going to the government for some funding requirements. So I think those things are have already been dealt with to a large extent. And then companies who do not have vulnerability, do not have liquidity issues, have enough cash, no debt to worry about, they are stepping out and saying, okay, let's think about the wider society and Let's use some of our resource to to help the public administration manage the crisis, or help um, some of the uh, poor sections of the society with uh, with uh, healthcare and medical uh, support. Uh, so we have seen a few examples of that in in our portfolio companies where they have gone over and above their. Uh, their focus and their business and uh, are pursuing some CSR-like activities. And I think that's a good thing because uh, it's good for the governments because governments are completely stretched right now. The resources are completely stretched. Uh, They are dealing with the health crisis. Uh, They're dealing it uh, every hour, there's a different issue. Uh, so, So they are obviously not going to be able to focus on each and every corner of the country and each and every society or each and every sections of the society. And I think that's where role of private enterprises will be uh, quite helpful because they are closer to certain sections of the society and uh, they have the type of resource and the focus to execute well as well in in these times. So I think it's a good thing. Some companies have started the CSR uh, stepped up their CSR activities. And I'm sure we'll see more such things happening, especially larger companies who are well resourced, have enough liquidity, uh, go out and support. If nothing else, they can support the supply chain, their distributors. Uh, I think that itself should be a very good help.
0: And have you seen some of the technology companies in, say, China, stepping up with tools to enable uh, say contact tracing or even um surveillance and uh, tracing of individuals under quarantine or lockdown
2: yeah i mean that has happened so yeah we've seen a number of chinese companies uh, develop uh, apps uh, to uh, to look at the the covid-19 uh, situation uh, there are apps which help uh, users um, understand what symptoms they have and whether it could be coronavirus or not. Uh, All the way uh, down to apps which uh, can trace and track uh, coronavirus patients and also help authorities understand uh, if uh, there is a risk in a particular community where uh, a particular infected person has been uh, living or has been traveling. Uh, And as a result, they can then uh, to deploy some of the resources uh, that they have on testing uh, in those in those hotspots. Uh, so to that extent, surveillance has been uh, u- has been used to um, to understand uh, the the understand and trace the um, coronavirus patients and to uh, deploy deploy resources accordingly. Uh, so I think surveillance is definitely uh, on the rise. It was anyways on the rise even before the virus for a different reason. But now it has become a compulsion to understand where a, an infected person has been and who he or she has been in touch with and whether or not these other people who, uh, who have been in touch with the infected person could possibly be infected. And the reason why this has happened is very simple, uh, is about testing, right? I mean, governments cannot knock on everybody's door and test, they have to uh, follow a targeted approach. And this is one way of uh, targeting who could be infected and and test them for the virus and and then offer them some solutions. Uh, So so you're right, I mean, this has happened uh, and we have heard similar stories in other parts of EM as well, where, uh, telecom towers and you know, mobile frequencies uh, are also being used to understand you know where a particular person has been uh, been going around etc so which communities could be infected uh, so governments are looking at uh, unique and innovative uh, methods of uh, uh, of finding out the trouble spots and uh, hot spots and and then uh, making sure that appropriate, testing resource is deployed in those communities and infected people are being identified and treated.
0: So, Kanjal, it seems that much of what we've been discussing here actually places emerging markets in a relatively strong light. Um, from my perspective, and I, I did spend some time living in Hong Kong, this is a region that is, is used to a certain amount of volatility. They are emerging in a sense, so they are still not perhaps at their peak in terms of um, economic strength. Um, in that sense, therefore, um, an exogenous shock such as this one perhaps isn't as devastating to emerging markets as it is to developed markets where you could say there was a certain amount of order and new world order that we've been enjoying for the best part of half a century. However, that said, um, what keeps you up at night when you look at your region? What trends do you think have been in place that are now perhaps completely in question? And what risks and threats do you think the region will see going forward?
2: Yeah so that's an interesting uh, question. Uh, We have spent quite a bit of time thinking about this uh, issue uh, as an opportunity and we have been uh, uh, diversifying our portfolio etc and we have also spent some time thinking about what can change uh, and what are the negative implications uh, out of this. Uh, So far, whatever we have come across uh, does not look to me as completely devastating for emerging markets. But that is one thing that does really uh, bother me is how are households going to behave or consumers going to behave after the situation normalizes and lockdowns are lifted, uh, whether uh consumers uh, think differently from how they were thinking before? Uh, do they change their consumption patterns? Do they change their consumption spending levels? Uh, do they reprioritize their uh, spending uh, areas? Uh, so I think those things are something that we really need to think very hard as fund managers. Because a number of companies in our portfolio and also in everybody's portfolio uh, depend uh, a lot on uh, consumption, Uh, and the global economy is also uh, kind of structured in a way where consumption expenditure is uh, a driver for a lot of things, it's a driver for. Uh, business profits; it is a driver for investments, and which is a driver for employment, uh, etc. You know. So, uh, if the consumer confidence remains subdued for a longer period of time after the virus, uh, or the consumer changes his or her preferences, then we may be in a in a very different uh, situation um, in 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 maybe two or three or four quarters from now. Uh, let me give you one example. So we're thinking about global tourism and travel, you know. So if you think about what happened last seven, eight, ten years because of uh, internet, because of online, because of uh, reviews, uh, cheap air travel, etc., uh, you know, there was a real big boom in in global uh, tourism and global travel, especially long haul, and a large part of that was driven by Chinese uh, tourists. Uh, traveling to cities across Europe and U.S., uh, whether the Chinese or any anybody uh, now uh, wishes to travel long haul, uh, explore uh, places uh, in the West, uh, I'm not sure. You know whether whether that will happen in a, in a short span of time. Uh, so people's preferences might change over there. Uh, Similarly, there could be a a shift in uh, savings uh, pattern as well. I mean, over the last many years, uh, even in emerging world, we have seen um, the household savings uh, rate has been declining uh, in favor of consumption. And this may change, you know, because a lot of uh, consumers might be feeling uh, the heat from the from the shutdowns, their cash flows might be impacted. Their, they may have, they may have lost jobs, uh, and as a result, uh, these consumers might go into a savings mode for the next uh, s- uh, couple of quarters or, or maybe some time over a year as well uh, to build up for what they have lost and also to build up a a fund uh, to help them uh, during the next uh, crisis. You know so. And that would also have implications for consumption going forward. So the point I'm trying to make here is that let's not assume that everything goes back to normal. The moment lockdowns are lifted, yes, there will be some sort of uh, recovery because, uh, you know, things are kind of pretty much not happening right now. Economic activity is completely dead and things will recover. So you will definitely see sequential improvement, very strong sequential improvement because you're moving from zero to something. So that's what is fine, that is fine. But then from that level going forward, whether we continue a rapid pace of growth or a more moderate or a gradual pace of growth is something that we need to see. And I think I would be a little bit cautious on uh, the ongoing recovery going forward uh, mainly on the premise that uh, consumers uh, will take a little bit longer to adjust uh, to the new environment and they may change their uh, preferences so that is something that really uh, worries me uh, because if you think about the us economy for instance which is a major driver for the whole world uh, almost 70 percent of the gdp is consumption you know uh, and if uh, the U.S. consumers uh, think differently, then we have a slight problem. Uh, similarly, China is looking to uh, migrate its economy from infrastructure and property into services and consumption. Uh, Chinese consumers already have been borrowing quite a bit you know, over the last uh, several years. It's not reached alarming levels. But whether the Chinese consumers continue to uh, borrow more and spend more is something we need to really uh, work out and and test. Uh, So, you know, those things uh, I would keep an eye on and and see how they evolve.
0: Let's bring in another guest. Steve Chevron, Portfolio Manager and Equity Strategist, joined us from New York City or technically New Jersey as he's working from home these days like the rest of us. Steve, we've just been discussing with Kunjal um, some of his concerns around the future path of consumer behavior in his region so all of emerging markets how do you see consumers emerging from this particular crisis
3: i think the emergence is going to be uh kind of reticent at first and and perhaps uneven um i mean i think there are some some essential services or 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 some basic shopping that people are going to want to do for example we're all going to want to go out and get haircuts Uh, or, you know, get our nails done or things of that nature because we've been kind of cooped up. We haven't been able to access those services. Um, I, I think where you're going to see the most, you know, we'll, we'll go food shopping again. We'll buy things for our homes. I think you may even see, you know, in the initial stages, a little bit of a, a, a kind of euphoria, almost a, a freedom day where you go out and, you know, you're able to, to, to buy and, and, and engage in commerce. I think, however, entertainment could be challenged for a while longer. While I am, uh, you know, certainly keen on, on, on getting things for my home, uh, maybe getting my car fixed, things of that nature, you know, I'm probably not interested in taking my family to a very crowded sporting event anytime soon. Um, and so I think that that, that will take some time. Um, I also think when you think about a country like the United States, you know, it's a vast territory uh, with very different kinds of communities, some that are more tightly concentrated, others that are much more spread out. So I think it's going to be different depending on kind of what environment you're in, how bad the virus outbreak was. You know, there's parts of the country here that really haven't been all that affected by the virus, but they've been shut in nonetheless. So I think it's going to be location dependent with a preference for kind of important, essential, and then, you know, a little bit of discretionary goods, but maybe a little bit more reticence around kind of entertainment, leisure, travel, things of that nature.
0: And how accurately or correctly do you think markets are assessing the impact of this right now? I mean, I, at the beginning of the podcast, I discussed how today markets seem to be clinging to every bit of hope that they can. And we've also seen that the um, extraordinary Federal Reserve Action announced last week that they will now be using um, their um, their funds to actually purchase not only high yield bonds, but also the ETFs, um, high yield bond ETFs that this seems to have shored up now the fortunes of highly levered companies. So do you think markets are properly assessing what the impact is likely to be?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think that the markets have been, you know, more rational than they appear at, at first blush. Um, when, when the crisis first began and you, you realized that you were shutting down, you know, large swaths of, of the economy all at once, what started to form were cracks in the system. Um, you, you saw this through various credit markets Uh, be it high yield or mortgages or treasuries or corporate bonds, uh, commercial paper. And you had the ingredients left unaided for a real financial system collapse. And I think that the sharp declines in the market that were occurring in the early stages had a lot to do with uncertainty over just that. So you knew there was going to be an economic impact. Okay, that's fine. We can kind of deal with that. But when you have a risk to the financial system, and the credit markets, that then becomes a crisis-type scenario. And that's where you were seeing you know, what really was the, the, the one of the swiftest 35% declines you know, in market history. I think when you look at all of the measures that have been provided by governments worldwide, really, both on the fiscal and the monetary side, they've removed the possibility, to, to a large extent, of having a financial system collapse. Now, we're still dealing with what's going to be a very sharp contraction in growth, in the coming weeks and months. That's still in place. But that that tail risk, that financial system collapse, we think has been taken off the table. And that's the relief that you see in the market. Because now, you know, rather than asking yourself, am I going to have a collapse and then an extended period of, of you know very subdued growth? What we're looking at is, am I going to have, you know, is the bottom now? Was it on March 23rd? Is it coming a little bit later? And is my recovery going to be sharper or more U-shaped? We think it's a U. Uh, but that's a much better conversation to be having than whether or not we're going to have, you know, the collapse of large swaths of, of, of the financial system. And so while, you know, the, the rally has been sharper than expected uh, and a little bit more powerful than expected, when you think about the, the negative uh, kind of u- cases that we've taken off the table, I, I think it, it looks a little bit more logical than you would first think.
0: And let's talk about big structural change Kunjal already discussed um, some of the big structural change that he thought would come to the healthcare sector as well as um, the ongoing change to enterprises as they, I think, prove their ability to shift to um, a more remote working style uh, and to respond to some of the challenges in the supply chains. Where do you think we're going to see this big structural change across which industries? I know we don't have much time now to go into detail, but just um, if you could maybe just name the headlines.
3: Yeah, look, you know, we've talked about uh, in our past discussions a secular bull market built in part on the digital revolution. We think that this crisis accelerates a lot of existing trends. So we think it accelerates the trends towards automation, robotics, uh, AI, Internet of Things. Uh, we think every company is going to do a self-audit here and ask themselves, you know, what systems do they need to upgrade, what worked, what didn't. So we expect a big tech spend coming out of this. We think that healthcare, you know, countries are going to have to stockpile medical devices, pharmaceuticals, upgrade their hospital facilities. We expect to see a lot of spending there. Uh, we think that this accelerates the trend of the rise of online retailers and the decline of the weaker brick and mortar retailers. And then finally, you know, we've talked a lot about um, the, the middle of the United States uh, itself emerging as an emerging market, if you will, uh, because of. Uh, you know, a lot of open land, easy access to energy, which is plentiful, easy shipping routes, ironclad IP, etc. We think that countries in general are going to, or companies rather, are, are going to ask themselves: You know, do I need to be a little less efficient? Meaning, do I need to have multiple sources uh, for my supply chain? Do I need to have a core manufacturing inside the home country for key goods? When I think about uh, how I use my capital, do I maybe not return as much capital? and have more of a rainy day fund? Uh, Do I pay a little bit more for a domestic workforce? Again, to have at least a core uh, home-based manufacturing capability. Um, And so I think, whereas the last 10 years have been one about uh, maximum efficiency, but no safety net. So low nominal growth, high margins. I think the next 10 years could be more about higher nominal growth, because you're, you're bringing more economic activity back to the home countries but with a little bit lower margins. And I think in that environment, um, active security selection, both on the credit side and on the equity side, is going to become more important than it was you know, over the last 10 years.
0: Kunjal, do you have any response to some of these points made by Steve? Yeah,
2: so I was saying that on technology, I agree with what Steve's saying. And even in the emerging world, we are seeing already seeing a, a similar trend. Uh, which is likely to accelerate going forward uh, be it automation or Um, robotics, uh, using Internet of Things, machine-to-machine communications uh, as a means not just to prevent future or mitigate future disruptions, but also as a means to improve productivity and efficiency. Uh, And we see technology um, is already embedding itself in all of the sectors that uh, we invest in. It's not really a, a standalone sector anymore now. Uh, so to that extent, yes, I mean, the role of technology, role of online is going to be uh, quite meaningful uh, going forward.
0: On that note, it's time to sound the closing bell. But before we do so, I'd like to t- thank Kunjal Gala, Co-Portfolio Manager on our Global Emerging Markets team and Steve Chevron from our New York office for joining me today.
3: Th- thank you so much, Ethan. So uh, so glad
2: to join. Thank you very much. And I hope this was uh, a helpful session.
0: Very helpful. In terms of the takeaways I would have from this I'd say the first thing is clearly the emerging markets are a very diverse area and there are more or less vulnerable countries as well as more or less vulnerable companies within these countries. The second thing is that I think in terms of drilling down into some of the sectors we've looked at there are certain sectors such as healthcare where maybe they have been broken by the stress test that's now been put upon them but perhaps when something is broken something better and um, brighter can emerge in its place, and certainly there seem to be already indications that the healthcare and global healthcare industry will emerge stronger from this. And finally, it seems based on our assessment of consumer behaviour that there is, just like in the case of this virus and just like in the case of the current state of shutdown and reopening, there is an awful lot that we do not know and we are still very uncertain about in terms of consumer demand, how that will look going forward whether there will be a resurgence of demand, and um, pent-up demand essentially, or whether consumers will now be much more risk-averse and prone to save more and spend less, as they are now have been quite acutely reminded of um, how suddenly a shock like this can take place. Finally, last month I provided you with the podcast recommendation. For many of us, podcasts are more important now than ever. They provide an opportunity to distract ourselves and lift our spirits from everything that's going on in the outside world. That said, I don't seem to be able to completely cut myself off from the current discussion um, in the podcast that I choose to listen to. One of my favorites of all time is called How I Built This with Guy Raz. It's a podcast about entrepreneurs and idealists and some of the movements that they have built. What I find particularly interesting about this is how humble many of these entrepreneurs are, how hard they've worked in their journey to get to where they've got to, and all the lessons they've learned along the way. One of the key lessons many of entrepreneurs have is um, resilience and how they built that and really developed that muscle over time, often through the the pain of hundreds of rejections. In a time like this, resilience is more important than ever. And in this podcast, there is a revisiting of some of these entrepreneurs' stories as they look at um, what they have learned from past experiences, past setbacks, and how they're using this to arm themselves against the current conditions. I'd really recommend it. I'll be back next month with another episode of Fundamentals. In the meantime, should you wish to keep up to date with my insights, please check out Sharp Thinking on our website. Right now, it's a weekly publication, just given the volume of news flow that we see out there. In this publication, I bring together the views of our portfolio managers, analysts and economists. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at the firm. Take care and thank you for listening to Fundamentals Unamplified.
1: Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.